You are an overwhelming crowd. You are. And when I look at you, I see strength and power and protection. So automatically I feel good. You know, I see a little bit more than just you. I see hundreds of faces beside you. I see your children, your little boys, your little girls. I see your companions, your friends, your teenagers. I see your fiance. I see your girlfriends. I see your wife standing right there with you. And I hope that I can say today what they would want me to say. God bless you. Thank you for coming. You may be seated. I have a dear friend in our community, and his name is John Alley. He pastors the second largest church in Alexandria, Calvary Baptist Church. And I was visiting with him this week, and he shared some insight with me. He said, Mickey, there are no old men in the world. We just have old bodies. Inside, we're little boys. We love to play. We love to work. We love our mothers. We love little girls. 99% of the men at that conference out there will love you and respect you because you're a little girl and they're little boys. But he continued to say, however, there's going to be 1% of the men. And in his words, he said, they're arrogant unlovable, perhaps unredeemable, and they won't respect you because they don't respect themselves. Well, if God be for me, (laughs) along with brother and sister Tinny and this great district board and Jerry Dean and the committee and my wonderful father-in-law, and Anthony, and 99% of you. Well, who's big enough to stand against me? I'm going after the 1%. I owe a great debt to my husband, Anthony. I really do. I, I know there is absolutely, positively no way that a marriage could be as rich as mine if he had not decided and determined a long time ago to love me and to respect me. Because of that, I have had the leverage to test the waters of my talents, and I've been free to grow, and I have thereby gained the courage and the confidence to even be right here, right now. Yes, I'm married. I like humor. Well, it helps. I figure if we laugh at ourselves, then we'll never run out of anything funny. (laughs) See? 
I still get hysterical when I see the picture of us shortly after we were married. Oh, the wedded bliss on our faces. I've told him that I will always treasure the false image that I had of him. Can you believe in a day where one out of two marriages end with divorce, we've lasted 23 years? And it's been the best six years of my life. Life can only be understood looking backwards. World-famous sociologist Margaret Mead related in a recent interview. Not long ago, on TV, I was discussing the family, and someone in the audience asked, Since your three marriages have failed, Margaret, what right do you have to comment on the family? Well, I looked at her, and I told her, I don't consider my marriages failures. Today, it's ludicrous to expect that two people can stay connected for a lifetime. What is our present society's response to the families never ending struggle for survival. It's this. The battle is not worth it. It's unrealistic to think that love should last forever. And no one can be expected to remain in an unhappy relationship anymore. Besides, it's better that your children not be raised in an unhappy home environment. You know, people change. Life is full of unexpected terms. And if a man and woman make it, they're just lucky. Perhaps Jane Fonda best summed up the modern perspective. For two people to be able to live together for the rest of their lives is almost unnatural. Her point is well taken and surprisingly biblical. In a fallen world, love for a lifetime is unnatural. Any one of you who has ever been involved in a love relationship, you'll have to vouch with me. Why is it unnatural? Because of sin. When sin entered into this world, which I hear is my fault, <laughs> pain and difficulty entered into every relationship. And as part of the curse of God on the sin of Adam and Eve, God essentially said, Family life is going to be impossible without me. 
in the same way that you are going to have to fight the weeds in the ground to grow your food, you are going to have to fight in your marriage. The plain truth is that one sinful man and one sinful woman equals conflict. Jesus came into this fallen world and he watched couples. He watched people and he saw the pain and he saw the conflict. Yet he stood by God's word in Genesis. The words that were spoken to the very first couple. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall become one flesh. And then Mark finishes it by saying where therefore and what therefore God hath joined together. Let no man separate it. Marriage, said Jesus, is for life. And as unbending as these words are, we still need to hear them. It's the plan of God. And he hasn't changed his mind in the last half century. It is true that it takes two to make a marriage work and one to tear it apart. God knows that you and I live in times that promote the one-person marital breakup. And since the liberation of women through the no-fault divorce, the marriage contract has become a mere piece of paper to be torn up and trashed at will. A man or a woman can simply walk away from his families, from her responsibilities, and hey, no one can stop them. God knows that, and he hates it. Picture a husband and a wife. Two boxers stepping into the ropes of the box ring of marriage. And sin has created this ugly scenario. But nonetheless, it's real life. And, and it's a battle for oneness. And the battle for oneness is every couple's nightmare. The world has determined that it's not worth the fight. God, however, says it's more than worth the fight. It's absolutely essential for survival. When things get dif difficult, we don't run away. We've got to stay in the ring. Within the ropes of holy matrimony. But there are good fights and there are bad fights. Paul said to Timothy, fight the good fight. The only way to win is if both the husband and the wife win. And the only way for both to win is through 
oneness. The good fight is never the fight to win. The only good fight is the fight for oneness. So Miss Mead, I wish you were here. You're dead wrong, Margaret. Love and commitment. Love and commitment is more than possible. It's necessary. Two people can stay connected for life. If they are full of the Spirit... And if they live lives above sin, and if they pursue the plan of God, which is oneness. Now, Anthony and I are really different. He's a real take charge type person. He, he manages to get it done. He's the new breed of Superman. He doesn't run into a booth and change into a different costume. He just stays in the same clothes. But he's great pastor by night, great pastor by day, good daddy by night, good daddy by day, good husband by day, good husband by night, and a great policeman. By day and by night. He's got a great sixth sense for crises, for which I've really thanked God for many times. I've seen him resuscitate the heart attack victim, pump lungs of drowning victims, direct traffic at accidents, save our daughter from running into the path of an oncoming car, Hold on to an extremely heavy beam that has slipped and was ready to fall until everyone clearing, cleared out below. And of course, all of this makes him very, very, very busy man. He, he just can't help it, okay? He loves people. He loves the work of God. He adores his family, and he loves controlling crises. He shines the brightest when he's in that arena. I recently heard of a second grader who was so frustrated because his daddy was always so busy and could never play with him. And so he goes to his mother and he says, Mama, how come Daddy just can't play a game of football with me and can't go fishing with me? He's always working. Well, Mom said, well, honey, your Daddy doesn't get all of his work done at work. So after thinking a little bit about it, the boy says, well, why don't they put him in a slower group? Well, I'm, I'm the one who's in the slower group. I'm, I'm more deliberate, 
uh, when there is a crisis, I tend to be the calm one if I ever even realize that uh, we have a crisis on our hands. And I'm the one who anticipates the good in the face of depressing news. I'm the one who feels confident that all will work out in the end. I'm the incessant optimist. Anthony says I don't have stress, but that I am a carrier. about differences, yet oneness. You know, harmony can be found in this paradox, oneness through difference. God's great plan in creating us differently as male and female is that our differences will actually complement and complete us. But what a far cry this is from the thinking of our world. Difference in our world is a threat. Difference suggests inequality and inferiority. Twenty years ago, the civilized world became swayed by the belief that men and women are essentially the same. Now, I don't personally have a degree in um, anatomy, biology, or psychology, but I can observe. And observation has taught me that there is a difference in the little boy who spits and thinks it's cool and the little girl who wrinkles up her nose and says, Yuck. Men like to jab, race, sweat, and hustle. At times, healthy men can discuss real heart issues of life. But usually, competition is a man's form of fellowship. Well, women, we like to talk. Now, we can become experts at many things, and uh, incredible athletes also. But really, we, we just prefer to talk. I'm in my domain right now. <laughs> Men tend to treasure the physical. Women treasure intimacy. Men are by nature conquerors, protectors, penetrators, and you tend to see more in black and white, to be solution-oriented. And when we talk, you just want to cut through all the rhetoric and get to the bottom line here. Well, generally speaking, women are more fine-tuned in our sensitivity to people, more nurturing, more process-oriented. We tend to be geared to relationships and inner needs. And on top of all of that, 
There are differences in body metabolism, pain thresholds, lifespans, work capacities, skeletal, muscular, and blood systems as a result. Can we expect that your needs and our needs are different? We won't communicate the same. We won't focus on conflict the same. Our perspectives on parenting, decision-making, problem-solving will differ. We will argue. Now, I don't know what Shirley was trying to say yesterday, but to me that sounded like one huge argument argument we are different not by default but by design why did God make us so utterly different so that we could complete each other so that we could fulfill the callings of God for men and women in the home. So that our children would have the benefit of both kinds of parenting. So that we could experience the joy of becoming one. I must meet you at your level and see your perspective. Yes. And you must meet me at my level and view the way that I see it. Difference when embraced is a great gift to men and women. It is not a threat. The threat of the women's role reversal is what is so frightening to me. For her graduation, my friend received a card, and on the front was a woman with blueprints under her arm holding her briefcase. It was expressing the feeling of the 90s woman. It said, Congratulations, you have finally become the person your parents always wanted you to marry. Though I am an advocate of achievement, I abhor with great disgust the feminine liberation movement. They say that real women must get tough and stand up for ourselves. Whatever we do, we must never allow a man to think he's boss in the relationship. Personal power is the key to my happiness and my security. 
In their opinion, that is the picture of the real woman. In my assessment of them, I view them as aggressive, competitive, sharp-tongued, intimidating, and manipulative. She is better than man, and oh, so difficult to love. I apologize for them. Yet there are many of them who are pitiful. I am convinced that many a modern woman has learned somewhere not to trust, not to give, not to relinquish absolute control. Somewhere in her life, a man has violated her trust. Perhaps her father abused her position of weakness as a child. Perhaps he violated her mother. Perhaps a husband expressed his authority over her by physical destruction. And perhaps he violated the sacred bond that they shared, stripping her of her self-worth and her dignity. Some have taken on the traits of the modern woman out of sheer effort to survive. I've always admired the way that Jesus viewed women. The ancient societies of the Jews, Greeks, and Romans held demeaning views of women. Women were servants and were to have only legitimate children. That was just about it. Needless to say, in Rome, there was a rampant women's liberation movement. This was the condition of marriage when Paul wrote in Ephesians, Wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands as unto the Lord. And husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church. Paul was not saying, now let me just remind you guys of this, this, this that you already know. He was calling them to a new standard of living. One that they knew nothing about. Well, it was into this kind of a world that Christ entered, breaking all the rules. He took women as followers. He used them in parables. He did not hesitate to talk with them. He even initiated the conversation with the outcast Samaritan woman. He freed Mary Magdalene from her condemnation and guilt. And when Jesus called for chastity, forbidding even to look with lust upon a woman, he still moved freely 
and with great integrity among women. As a result of that, women wholeheartedly responded to him by following him, by honoring him, trying to please him. Yes, I've always admired the way Jesus viewed women. Patient. He was caring. He nurtured them. He affirmed them. And his responses were always kind and gentle. Philippians 2 and 5 reads, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. As a man thinketh, so is he. It all has to do with attitude. Attitude is thought in action. Out of your philosophies come thinking. Out of your thinking comes acting. Christ thinks of us and treats us as equals. Now I know without a doubt that within the context of spiritual equality, men remain men and women remain women. The God-assigned roles in marriage and society remain unchanged forever, no matter what the times say. Yet it's the attitude that makes all the difference. Galatians reads, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ and have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Realizing that we can be oh so different, yet one. And with the right attitude, we just really ought to be able to make it. Now I know this is not a worldly audience. The majority and the most of you are godly men trying to serve God and trying to serve your family. But can I just open up the door of all reserve and tell you what we want? It's very simple. We want you to lead us. And we want you to love That's all. Anthony asked me over the phone to marry him. I 
I realize it could have been a bit more romantic. But, uh, hey, he was uh, busy. He was in a revival crisis in St. Louis. And uh, I was in college with my briefcase in Houston. Well, a few days later, I met him at the Houston airport, and we went to Bill's truck stop. to see if indeed that's what we wanted. And after agreeing to commit to one another, he said, uh, I have two expectations of you. You must pray one hour a day, and you must fast one day a week. Well, for a young girl in love, you know, that wasn't asking so much. He didn't ask me to have legitimate children only, you know. I, I thought he was pretty progressive myself. I... And then he asked me, what do you expect of me? Well... I thought, and I thought, scratched my head, searched the ceiling, and I must have been brain dead. Um, to love me? Okay, okay. He kept waiting for something else. That's all. That's all? Yeah, that's, that's all I ask. Well, I'll provide for you the best that I can, but you know we're going to be living out of a car as we evangelize. Uh, that's okay. And um, you won't get to see your folks very much. You know, we'll be on the East Coast a lot here in the future, going to home missions churches. Um, is that okay? Yeah. You know, there might be some times that I have to go away and you'll be all alone. Okay. Well, you know, Mickey, we've been raised a little bit differently. I'm, I'm an only child. And we, we may have differences that we might have to walk, walk through and work on. Can you handle that? Yes. Yeah. I just want you to love me. That's all? That's all. She was born and reared in Thomaston, Georgia. The year was 1904. At age 18, she moved to Columbus, about 50 miles away, to get a job. She found room and board on Tobleton Avenue. He lived 
next door with his mother and sisters, 22 years old, six feet tall and almost 200 pounds, a fine gentleman. He worked hard and he was very businesslike. His father had walked out on the family when he was a teenager and he had to grow up real fast. The two neighbors eyed each other and began to court. In March of 1923, they became one. A daughter came in 1924 and a son in the fall of 29. They were a happy family. They had just bought a new home. Those were the days of depression, but the six-foot man was a foreman in a factory, and they were secure. Well, secure until someone in the factory started hanging around his desk, baking him cookies, asking him if he needed anything, rubbing his tired shoulders. Conversation and communication stopped back at the house. She wasn't quite sure if she had offended him or if finances were tough. She worked even harder at making their home a haven of peace. But something was different. The oneness was gone. She struggled ever so hard to understand this difference in him. One morning she asked, What can I fix you for breakfast? He jolted and glared into her eyes and said, When I need something from you, I'll ask you for it. That afternoon when he returned home from work, he asked her to leave and to take the children back to Thomaston. He had no feelings for her anymore, and he wanted her out. What was it, Grandpa? Was Grandma's faithfulness boring to you? Was her maturity and her down-home charm not as enticing any longer? Did the sensual looks from that young secretary move you more than the dancing eyes of your little boy when you drove up in the yard with that brand new car? Grandma has told me that when Daddy saw that car, he squealed with delight, got a big towel and ran outside and started rubbing it and shining it. He's always loved cars, Grandpa. In fact, he grew up to be the number one car salesman in his company. 
And that's not all. He's got your pension for business. And he runs the budget for an entire organization. He's built several churches. He pastored them. He's married and has been for a long time. Married Jean Rose Bra, and they had three children, and they have... But you don't know all of that, Grandpa. Daddy never even got to ride in your new car. He was seven. His sister was 12. And Grandma reared them all alone. When he kept commanding her to get out of his house, she finally had to go against her nature. She slammed her fist on the table and said, I'm not going anywhere. I moved into this house the same day you did. I'm not the one who's dissatisfied. If you want to end our marriage, you're doing the leaving. There's the front door. Grandma says he supported them, but never attempted to see them or make contact with them again. He died at 59 with a heart attack. Dad and Annalise drove miles and miles to see him just moments before he passed away. I wish he could have known his children. I wish he could know that Auntie has been married 55 years and Daddy's been married 46 years to the same person. And I wonder if I'm anything like him. Do I look like him? Do I look like his mother? Do I look like his sisters? I don't even have any memories. Just some pictures of a life that was. But Grandma remembers. She remembers the first look, the first touch, the first night, the first child, the first home, and the last goodbye. Oh, Grandpa, you were so foolish. Love can last for a lifetime. She's lovely. She's godly. She's 92. And she's fiercely independent. You made her that way. I asked her this week, Grandma, what was the worst part of Grandpa leaving? But she immediately said with no thought, the children. Oh. The children, it was devastating for the children. No, Grandma. What was the worst part of it for 
breakfast you. Well, she thought, she thought. She scratched her head. She searched the ceiling. And for a brief moment, all of her independence flew out the front door of her little white brick home. Daylight dry your tears I'm here with you, beside you To guard you and to guide you Then say you'll love me Every winter morning Turn my head with talk of summertime To hide me and say. 